Hello and welcome to the Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Doc Podcast. Today's episode is going to be part two of my discussion with the amazing Dr. Stacy Ochoa. For those of you who don't know Stacy, she's a general dentist who practices in the St. Louis area. She's also the co-founder of the ASAP Pathway. And for her full bio, please check out part one, which was released on October 27th, 2023. It worked so well in part one to do this joint podcast that we're actually going to do the same thing today for part two, where both of us will be asking and answering questions in a more conversational format. That way, both the Doc Podcast and the ASAP Pathway Podcast audiences can benefit from the content. Just as a quick review, in part one, we provided an overview of when and how interceptive orthodontic treatment can be extremely advantageous and transformational. We reviewed the importance of a thorough diagnosis and treatment planning process, discussed the literature that supports the value of interceptive treatment and disputed some of the articles that oppose it. And we dispelled the notion that docs who perform this type of treatment are just expanding every kid in an attempt to cure obstructive sleep apnea. Today, in part two, we're going to provide a more detailed and specific treatment option and suggestions for pediatric patients who suffer from sleep disordered breathing. We'll compare slow and uh, slow maxillary expansion to rapid maxillary expansion, discuss the expansion of the mandibular arch, and talk about the possibility of actually using braces and wires instead of traditional methods to expand and develop the arches. We'll also discuss why we believe so many orthodontists are resistant to this approach to interceptive treatment. So with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Stacy Ochoa back to the podcast. Welcome, Stacy. Thanks, Mike. So good to be back. Thanks for coming back. This is fun. Part one was fun and, and we're going to dive deeper in today. So looking, looking, looking forward, forward to it. To it. Yeah. So before we get going, uh, I just want to take a moment to just kind of give a little recap into why we're so passionate about this. When we talk about treating these kids young, we're talking about changing lives. And that can sound kind of cliche, like, oh, we do this to change lives. But we are really changing lives. Um, when you go in and treat these kids and evaluate their airway, evaluate their presenting symptoms when they come in to see you at a young age, prepubertal, anything from you know, three, four years old up until eight, nine years old, there are things you can see that we're not learning, we're not being taught in our training programs, and we're not even aware of a lot of times. I think it's really important to stress that we're not saying that expansion cures pediatric pediatric sleep disorder breathing, mouth breathing and snoring. We're not saying that you need to go expand every patient, right? What we're saying is, is by expanding the arches and making room for the tongue, you're eliminating a major airway obstruction. The tongue is big. And when it's pushed posteriorly, it can often block the oropharynx. And this is most commonly seen in patients who have narrow arches because the tongue doesn't have space intraorally. It's also important to clarify that we are very big, and I know you and I have talked a lot about this, on the need to diagnose and treat the etiology. Yeah, You don't just go expanding these patients that aren't narrow saying, oh, you know, go in on every young kid, pre-adolescent kid, and just start throwing whatever appliance you're going to use in to expand them, and you're going to cure all sleep disordered breathing. No, that's not the case. What you're doing is you need to take the time as a diagnostician to evaluate whether or not these patients are have a transverse discrepancy, whether or not they have an airway obstruction. And if they do, and you address the transverse discrepancy at this young age, oftentimes the airway obstruction improves. 
And this phenomenon has been well documented. We referenced last time the 2022 study in sleep medicine published by our colleague, Dr. Audrey Yoon and her, her colleagues at Stanford, where they studied the 60 patients with a mean age of eight years old and found that the exp expansion group experienced a statistically significant decrease in both adenoid and tonsil volume compared to the untreated control group. So we know there yeah. are data out there that prove that when you help grow them intraorally, that they have, it has an impact on their airway. Again, we're not saying that you no longer need adenoid tonsillectomy, not at all. But what we're saying is something is going on here and mm -hmm. it's incumbent upon us to investigate this further. And to that point, another reason why it's such an important discussion is this affects these kids in more ways than just, oh, well, you know, they've got some crowded teeth. And so often our profession, orthodontists, look at the patient for their teeth. Instead of looking at the patient for their overall presenting symptoms, for the, the, the pattern of, of pathology that's going on here, right? So we have to be cognizant of those relationships because it does tie into neurocognitive issues, hyperactivity, ADHD. When these patients aren't sleeping, when they're not getting deep, restful sleep, it affects them systemically. And that is, I mean, that exists throughout the otolaryngological literature all over. There's multiple articles to demonstrate that. One quick one, in 2006, the International Journal of Pediatric Otolaryngology, they reviewed 33 articles, which included a study population of 22,255 children. So just a couple. <laughs> just <laughs> and a they few. Just a few. And they concluded that sleep disordered breathing in children is conclusively associated with behavioral, neurocognitive, yes. and quality of life problems. So when we talk about why this is important, that's why. So if we, yeah. as the dentist and orthodontist, can look at these patients when they come to us, and oftentimes they're coming or we see them and we might see crowded teeth and narrow arches, look more at them. Look for the allergic shiners. Look for the Denny Morgan lines. Look for the chap lips, the chap gums, as I call them, the adherent plaque on the anterior teeth, their parent reports of restless sleep and, and or hyperactivity, right? Look into the, have a cone beam, look at the nasal passageway patency, look at the, the pharyngeal patency, start to look at the tongue space. That's all we're saying. We're not saying that we diagnose obstructive sleep apnea. No, we're not saying that yeah. we take the role of the physician. We're just saying, no. stay within your lane but make yes. sure you understand your lane. Yes, and we have a place at the table. We really do. We uh, we are all um, at this table with our specific roles. And I love, love, love that you said stay in your lane. Um, <laughs> because, you know, some of these, and I guess too, you know, there's some companies out there that um, in the dental field, that are almost kind of making some really broad blanket statements about yep. curing OSA, yep. really giving us a bad name. Yes. And I think- Thank you for um, mentioning that. I had a sleep physician actually say to me, and I won't mention the company, but he goes, Stace, what's up with this company, you know, doing comb beams, telling people that, you know, measuring their volume and saying, I'm going to cure your OSA by, you know, you cannot look at a comb beam at the volume, it's a that's a static image static of a image. dynamic, yep. yeah, of a dynamic it. airway. Yep. It's like nailing jello to a wall. You know, it's like you can't look at that and say, oh, you have OSA. Exactly. Um, you can't say I'm gonna cure that either. I mean, if we had a cure for OSA, I I think, you know, 
everyone would know about it by now, but no one has the cure. So what we're doing, like you said earlier, it is removing obstacles. Mm -hmm. It's multifactorial. It's Mm -hmm. we have, you do sometimes need tonsils and anoids sometimes removed. Yes. Sometimes they shrink. Yep. After expansion, we know right. that based off the paper you just referenced. Yep. And about so a thousand it, cases, I've seen it happen in my home practice. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. So there are a lot of pieces to the puzzle. And dentists and orthodontists and pediatric dentists, we have a seat at the table with our medical colleagues to look at our patients with like a continuity of care and to have more of a collaborative relationship with each other. And maybe they do their thing first. Maybe they punt to us and we do ours first, but it's working together and having conversations and giving parents options and autonomy to decide maybe what treatment they want to start with first, you know? Um, So it is important because these are children that are growing and they've got one chance in that window. Yes. And we are becoming the primary care of the airway. They see us often um, more than their pediatricians and it's our obligation and it for the ADA to say it really should be the standard of care for screening for dentists, you know, and if you don't want, like you said in the last podcast, if you don't want to actually do the therapy, you don't want to do the interceptive ortho yourself, that's okay. It's okay. But it's our responsibility, just like a primary care physician, they may not say, you know, I'm going to handle the sleep, but they're screening for the sleep problems and then right. they refer appropriately. Refer right. And, so, and that's okay. There's no shame that's in that. Okay. Like, just don't hate on those who do want it. Exactly. Want exactly. <laughs> so I wanted to dive in. So in in part two, we were definitely going to go into more techniques mm-hmm. and yes. what is currently existing. Um what makes your approach? Because when I first met you, I was like, wait, what are you doing? You know, it was interesting. (laughs) Yeah. Wait, what is what? So if you could tell us a little bit more about what you're doing, that's a little different than what is being traditionally done for arch development. Yeah. um, As I said, that's a common reaction I get, whether it's orthodontist or dentist. um, And what you said, I just completely echo. And and thank you for stating that so, so clearly. Uh, I think it's really important that we get those points out there. And uh, in the podcast I had with Lou Chimera, Dr. Lou Chimera, who I know you know as well. Yeah. uh, He talked about a time when he went to the airway meeting with the ADA and the guy next to him was an orthodontist and was bragging about how much money he was making because he doesn't have to do anything except they just throw this appliance in every single patient that they get. And it's making them all this money and he's treating it as airway orthodontics. That is the problem, right? Mm, that right is the problem. is the problem. I find that probably more offensive than the ones who are just ignoring this even exists. <laughs> yes. <laughs> At least taking... those are kind of willing to, maybe they, we can teach them, we can help show them. Someone yes. like that, they have... They don't have the patient's best interest uh, at, in mind and at heart. And that Correct. is a major violation for me. This Agreed. requires more work, more diagnostics, more time, more energy, more resources. But when you do it, you have the ability to transform patients' lives in ways beyond anything just straight teeth actually do. Uh, and I'm not minimizing straight teeth. It's just when you have the other podcast I had w- with um, the mom and dad, um, yeah. that talk, when you listen to those parents explain how their child's life changed through this. It's really hard not to hear that as all of us care about our patients and go, maybe there is something to this, right? Like maybe. So again, that, that, that episode, um, maybe we can link that one in the show notes because I think that's one that a lot of people are very interested in hearing. So back to your question of why, uh, how I'm doing it differently. So, um, 
I started doing this or, you know, it was 20 years ago, came out of my residency, really didn't have any training in the sense I had amazing training, but not a lot in nothing in airway and, and not a lot in early treatment, right? One of the problems is in our residency programs today, we just don't get access to younger patients. So we're not really seeing or treating. If we see them, we're just kind of screening them. And they're not really in most residencies, you're not really treating these younger patients. So you kind of come out and you don't really know how to do a lot of interceptive treatment. It's, it's kind of a problem with the educational system. I just got this feeling, as I mentioned in part one, that I'm looking at these kids and going, you know, I just don't feel like extracting teeth is the, is the, the real solution here because that's not the cause isn't big teeth. So I started using expanders, using upper and lower expanders. And we'll talk more about the literature, literature for that in a moment. The problem is, is people, parents, kids, <laughs> hate expanders, right? Like it's, <laughs> I, I was working on designing one, fitting one with a resident yesterday for reversible headgear. And, you know, it's, they're never fun, right? They're never fun. And and so if I, I really felt like, God, there's got to be a better way to do this, but I didn't think there was. So what happened was, so what I was doing, just, I want to be clear. And we'll, again, I'll go into the literature on this more in a moment, but we're not talking about expanding the mandible, right? We're talking about dental alveolar expansion of yes. the mandibular arch. So I looked at it and I said, well, I'm, slowly tipping these teeth out on the bottom to develop the arch. I'm going in on the top and I'm putting this rapid expander in on these younger kids, say seven years old. Do they need that much force? And so it just kind of started about maybe five, six years into my career where I started doing it. It was actually some patients who had special needs and they couldn't tolerate expanders. Mm -hmm. And I told the parents, I said, they begged me not to send their child. I'm like, the only thing we can do is extract teeth. Like we have to, we have no choice. They are going to have, they had you know, significant crowding. And the parents are like, Dr. Mike, that'll require like multiple times going under deep sedation, general anesthesia. Like we, I don't want that for my child. So I said to them, all right, I'll try something. And I said, I think with some basic, you know, just, just some, some mild oral sedative, I think we can get the braces on based on the patient's temperament. And they agreed. And I said, do you think, you know, he or she could tolerate them once they're on? They're like, yeah, they're really particular. They'll definitely take care of it. I said, okay. If we get braces on, we can try to do as much as we can with braces. I don't know that it's going to work. I had in my informed consent, this may not work, right? Right. Like we may have to pull teeth, but it's not going to hurt anything. Uh, and so I just, I started doing, it. I put light forces on, put braces and full braces and wires on these patients in the early mixed dentition and just started to see what happened. And Stacy, when they started coming back in for their adjustments, I'm looking in the mouth going, calling my like a clinical team over like, you guys have to come see this. This is nuts. <laughs> like I couldn't believe what was happening. And as a Yukon purist, biomechanics, Charlie Burstone guy, I'm like, wait a minute. Like this isn't supposed to happen. This can't be happening. This isn't happening. So I started, <laughs> I tried on a couple other patients. Then I took some patients and I said, well, maybe I'll just do this on the lower because on the lower, when you're doing slow expansion, it's, it's dental alveolar. I said, I'll just do lower braces and an upper RP and did that for a little while. And that was working great, working amazingly well. And then I was like, well, let me see if I can push this envelope and just <laughs> some of these patients not do the RPE. Let's see how we can do. And the reason why we can do that, and I'll get it, we'll talk about the literature, as I said, more in a moment, but it has to do with age and patient age. And so if you put these braces on these patients, and that's how I do it, I put full upper and lower fixed appliances, braces, and wires on these pre-adolescent patients in the early mixed dentition. And what it does is it creates amazing results. Um, a lot of times, you know, expanders, they take narrow Vs and they make wide Vs, right? So you, you put a, a, an expander in a Hyrax type expander, you get this wide V. 
well, where do we often need the space in these patients? Not in the posterior. It's usually in that anterior to middle third of the arch. So you get these beautiful horseshoe-shaped arches, you get tons of room for the canines, the incisors. You develop these arches to have this shape. Well, what does that also do? Makes more room for the tongue. And what I found was when I used a turnkey expander, you would still sometimes have this high vaulted palate. Yes. Right. And, you know, it it wasn't that beautiful arch shape and form that you want. And the tongue oftentimes couldn't get up in there because the expander is blocking it. What I found is with braces and wires, the tongue does a lot of the work too. And I am convinced of it. So you're using that light force to draw the teeth out and you're, you're getting orthopedic change too. We'll talk about that more in a moment, but then the tongue can get in there, position itself more superiorly and anteriorly and start to shape that palate. And when you look at the before and afters of the cases I treat that way, um, we can maybe, I can even give you, we can put some up if we want, put for watching it on video, we can just put a couple as we're talking here that can kind of pop up some before and afters. It looks different than anything I'd ever seen before using turnkey appliances, whether you're, no matter what type of appliance or or a quad helix or a W arch or a night and all expander, what doesn't matter. Nothing I did looked like this and worked like this. Um, and it also minimized the need for a second phase. Didn't eliminate it always. But when I did have to do a second phase on these patients, it was a layup. I mean, it was like, it just was so straightforward. So that that's the crazy way I do it that uh, I've now treated thousands of patients that way. I started doing it in like 2011 that way um, and have, have tons of data to substantiate uh, everything that I've been doing. Which is what I love too, is you're not just saying, hey, this worked. I mean, you do have really great records and before and afters, which I was very impressed with. I wanted to go back to what you said about the Mm -hmm. tongue, because a lot of this, you know, people will come up and say, okay, what's the appliance? Like, what's the magic appliance? I'm like, look, the, there isn't a magic, there isn't a magic appliance um, and every child's different. But what's what you said, this is it, really. You said the tongue did most of the work for me. Mm-hmm. Well, let's get back to what craniofacial, natural craniofacial development is all about. The tongue drives yes. the growth, right? Something happened along the way that dropped the tongue. The tongue stopped developing that upper arc. Is, why do you think we don't understand? Why do you think we don't recognize that as a profession? Right. It's literally, it's like, all we're doing is getting that tongue back up there to do the job it was supposed to do in the first place. Right. And in a child that is nose breathing properly and swallowing properly, because right. there's a myofunctional component to it as mm-hmm. well, yep. they are developing a beautiful arch. Yep. So getting that tongue up there to do its job, that's that's the whole point of all of this. Like We aren't miracle workers. It's really the tongue. And yeah. we're just allowing that tongue to get up there. It's and it's basic biology. Completely. We Conversely, we completely don't argue over the fact that a tongue thrust blows everything open. Exactly. The tongue like, can do just as much damage as it can do helpful things for right. us. So if the tongue can push the entire maxillary mandibular dentition anteriorly and make them bimax protrusive with an anterior open bite, why couldn't it help shape the palatal arch and the palatal vault in the correct way in the yes. correct way and why couldn't it obstruct an airway if it's going backward i i like it this is where i just kind of sit there sometimes and say why are we like why we're are we missing arguing that. about this I, yeah. I, it's so funny it's just yeah we're it's some of it is so obvious like when we said in the last podcast like you explain this to a parent and the light bulb they just look at you go oh yeah makes yeah. total sense it's very basic you know yeah. it's very basic and then you've got people arguing 
you know, online, these, you know, orthos and dentists about, you know, I'm like, it's just, it's the tongue. Okay. We got to get the tongue where yep. it belongs. When you look at the palate, the palate should be almost like a tongue print. It should yes. look just like yes. a tongue. Yeah. And when you're, when you look at a palate that's V-shaped and narrow, and then you look down at this rounded, beautiful tongue yep. and they don't match, it's because that house hasn't had the tongue living in it. And so it's going to go somewhere. And it's get yeah, the tongue's got to go somewhere. So it goes down and back. Yep. So we want the tongue. It's interesting too. Somebody said this. I think it was Mike Mew years ago told me this. Every muscle has an origin and an insertion point. Every muscle. The tongue's insertion point should be up in the palate, up and forward. Mm. So when the insertion point of the tongue is not there, then you have this low tongue posture mm-hmm. down and back the upper arch isn't developing. So to think of the tongue, like where's its insertion point for a lot of children today, it's the floor of the mouth. Yeah. Their insertion point is the lower anteriors. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's not where it belongs. And this is where the diagnostics like in a comb beam are so beneficial because mm-hmm. you can take that coronal slice and look at, I just did a coaching session with some docs of the day and we took, they have comb beam and I was t- taking them through it, showing them how they can pick some of this stuff up. Uh, and, I, I sliced it and I said, look at the tongue. And you see this invagination, this V-shaped dip in so this void between sort of the depth of the V of the dorsum of the tongue and the inferior border of the palate. And there's this yes. black, almost heart-shaped uh, sort of black um lucency there. And and I'm like, that 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 when you see that, you know the tongue is not shaping and forming the palate. You know the tongue is squished in. The tongue shouldn't have this huge deep invagination in the dorsum. That's not what's supposed to happen, it's especially to on a seven-year-old kid. Yes, so, um, you, you get know, a lot of information there. And yeah. but did you see? So when you're doing this, let's. I want to go back to how you had your epiphany. So you started seeing these beautiful arches being developed. What did you notice with the palate? though, with the braces and wires technique in these younger kids, did you see vaulted palette change? Amazing. Amazing. We'll put a couple up for the, for those who are watching this in, on a, on a video platform. Um, it's amazing what I saw and I've got it in cone beam. So you can look at it in every slice or dimension radiographically plus clinically, uh, you, and then I have in some of my courses, I show, some of the cases I used to do when I did it with RPE, the before and the after, and you see a wide arch with a high vaulted palate still, right? And then you take someone who presented almost the exact same presenting palatal shape, crowding, um, tooth positioning, and you do it with the braces and wires and you look at their post and it's like, wait a minute, what? Like, how is that even possible? <laughs> so yeah, I I started seeing it. You know, it's another really interesting point, Stacey, is I saw, so my initial wire is an 014 nickel titanium thermal wire, not a very strong wire, right? You're not going to get a significant force. that's going to really enact much orthopedic change in that. But I'd see these patients come back eight weeks later after I put that wire in and I'm like, they're expanding. Now, some of it, you get a little bit of dental alveolar tipping of those teeth because they're constricted. Right. But, I'm going, but it's more than that. Like th- there's no way this wire alone was able to do that. So my theory is the wire starts some dental alveolar tipping of, of those primary teeth in the buccal segments. And then the tongue now starts to be able to fill into that area and helps you along the way. And by the time you're into like a 1622 or 1725 nickel titanium wire, which can deliver, you know, upwards towards 600 grams of force, which is plenty uh, from the studies that talk about 
how much force you need to, to have orthopedic change of the maxilla in a young pre-adolescent patient. And a lot of the studies say it's like 200 to 400 grams ish is what you need with say 453 grams, give or take is, is a pound. So you're talking about, you need like a half a pound to a pound to get orthopedic change in a young patient, not a 14 year old kid. Right. Right. Very right. Important to, to, you know, we're talking it's about a different. patient who, yes, the, the, uh, there's no interdigitation of the palatal suture. It's completely patent. So when you do that, the studies are very clear and there, there are numerous studies out there that document this that that's the amount of force that you can get orthopedic change. I mean, going back to Ricketts in the seventies, he knew this with his W arch and the quad helix concept. So I just took that and said, okay, well, when you deliver that, and as we talked a little bit about before, you're never really, when you design that appliance in a really high vaulted narrow pallet, you're not getting that thing up super high. You're right. just, not, you can't, you know, yeah. especially with like a quad helix or something. You're just not, your, your, your line of action of force is not up at the height of the vault of the pallet period. So I said, well, a lot of this is kind of pushing on the sort of toward the crown of the tooth anyway. What if we just go to the buckle and, and use these wires? And so when you get that amount of force, which is plenty by the literature for orthopedic expansion in young patients, you start shaping the arch. But to your question, it happened faster than I thought. And I'm going, there's something else going on here. And that's where the tongue comes in because the tongue is so strong. Uh, it's able to, once it starts having a home, it starts yeah. to go there, which gets to a question I want to ask you. There's this big debate of when you should start this, right? And the tongue is a muscle. There is muscle memory. The I saw empirically in my patients, the ones I got at a little younger, six, seven, the changes were like instant and very quick because yeah. they, you know, they did, they, they, Maybe they hadn't developed the perfect mature somatic swallow, but they weren't so far from kind of that infantile swallow, the thrust forward, that they are able to be pliable enough that it, it just self-corrected. I found those patients that were a little older, 9, 10, where I'd still push that envelope because they still have patency there of the suture. Um, I found that those patients, it it was harder. Like it didn't, the, the arch didn't develop as quickly. And again, just me theorizing, the tongue is most likely was so much more habitually postured or was functioning in the wrong way or wrong place that it wasn't helping me out. So you've, we've talked about this. You actually start this and have done this younger on pa on patients younger than yes, I have. Yes. Yes. Talk to me a little bit about that. When, when are you doing this? What age are you doing this? Um, what are you doing at that age? I, so it's so interesting because the tongue is, I mean, it's nature's expander. I mean, that's really I what like it that. is. It, nature's expander. So, I mean, that was the original expander and just something went wrong along the way. And so you hear the average expansion, eight, nine, 10. Uh, what in my uh, my group of practitioners where we've been learning from each other within ASAP and, and just collaborating with other um, orthodontists that are very airway centric, they started, which pushed me to start doing it to push the envelope, start expanding younger. Hmm. I mean, I have colleagues expanding two and three year olds. Hmm. So now I have colleagues using fixed bonded expanders in as young as two with reverse pull face mask. Um, and it can happen and it they can be compliant. Um, I've done it on, you know, four and five-year-olds. Mm -hmm. And it's, again, 
you know, some patients are a lot more accepting of that than sure. others. Yeah. Others are like, this ain't, this ain't going down. We're not doing this. You yeah. know, they're, they're not going to handle it, especially yeah. special needs. Yeah. Um, or sensory, you know, you've got children yep. with a lot of sensory issues. Absolutely. That palate, you block that palate, you put all that stuff in there, you're going to send them off the edge. Completely. They can't do it. I saw that in seven, eight-year-old patients. Yes. So mm-hmm. so there is this- I, I should clarify, um, when I was doing it with expanders, that was that, yes, that went when away. You were doing it. That went away yes. when I went to braces and wires. Sorry. So then, I, so the, here's the debate, even among the expander population of, of practitioners, like- mm-hmm. Okay, Hyrax is is just too supported. So you're not really getting the bony changes. So then yeah. they started, I mean, you really want to grab the bone. You want to do more of a bone tooth supported expander to really change the palate. Yeah. Then we started, you know, actually I, I want to give props to Audrey Yoon. I mean, she started doing some stuff with Invisalign first mm-hmm. in two and three-year-olds doing clin checks, saying, look. You know, we don't have the studies yet, but what I'm seeing in my practice, like the symptoms are going away in these kids. Hmm. Uh, they're sleeping better. They're breathing better. Um, and they're just so soft and pliable and juicy. Mm-hmm. Like yep. they move so easily. We yep. don't have to put a lot of force. So going back to that, you know, we are seeing kids younger and younger. When you see the malocclusion, if they're going to tolerate the, the therapy, it's like, Let's try. Let's try doing some Invisalign or yeah. it would be interesting, you know, brackets and wires. I don't know how young we could go with that. That'd be interesting because I know you, you've you gone six and seven, but you've talked about, we, you and I have talked about even, um, well, here, let me go back to the expander too. Mm-hmm. The, the part of the expander that does bother all of us, I mean, it it does a great workload, right? But you're blocking the tongue. For that period of time. Completely. You are blocking the tongue, which is the ideal expander. And you're definitely not encouraging it to go to the home where it belongs. That's for sure. So sometimes you actually see kiddos doing a little worse first. Yeah. Before they get better. I saw it. I saw it often. They get worse before they get better. And and, Or, you know, sleep physicians are like, hey, let's go ahead and you've done all this expansion. Let's do a, a follow-up PSG. Well, let's not do it with the expander in because their tongue can't go up there. So right. you're probably going to not see good results if that expander is in. So it would be, you know, ideal to have something that wasn't blocking the palate for that period of time in these soft kiddos. And you've, you and I have talked about the research or even just like slow maxillary expansion. There's a whole camp of that, you know, yeah. uh, rapid versus the slow expansion, even in the palate with palatal expanders. And then, um, so can you go into a little bit of what you've come across just with some literature with rapid palatal expansion and kiddos under like 10 years old? And Happily. Um, and I actually have an article in June in Orthotown. And that article went into kind of the background, the etiology, things that we were talking about a lot in part one of this podcast and the beginning of today's. The second one, which is coming out in November, is actually going to talk about the different types of expansion. And and one thing that, you know, contemporary orthodontics profits book is kind of like like a biblical text in the mm-hmm. the education of of pediatric dentistry and orthodontics with good reason it is just a phenomenal text with with so much great info and prophet is 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 such a, a renowned figure in our profession when i saw this someone had mentioned it to me and i went back and read it and i'm like i, I, I never stuck but prophet actually said that using rapid maxillary expansion in young children 
is a quote unquote disadvantage and can cause facial distortion. He also said that there's no evidence of any advantage of rapid movement and high forces in children and ample evidence that it can be dangerous, dangerous. So his conclusion was that slow expansion is the preferred approach to maxillary constriction in children in the primary, primary, he actually says primary and early wow. mixed dentitions. So stop and think about that for a second, right? You know how often I'm, I'm guilty. I threw an, a, a, an RPE into a seven-year-old kid and told him to turn it once or twice a day. That's not right. <laughs> Describe some of the changes. Like I, I, I've seen studies where it said there was Vomer drop. Oh, um, I mean, you would have parents that notice this stuff. Um, and I've seen it in our study groups online, our, our, some of the main ortho study groups um, where people will post and say, they've got a patient who the mom is like, like outraged. And they're saying, she's saying that this kid now is having nasal problems and the change of shape of his face and his nose. And obviously when you do expansion on these young kids, you're changing the shape of the face, but in a very positive right. way, you're na it's right. more natural. It's, it's broader. It's, it's symmetrical. You're helping redirect the vertical growth, uh, away from vertical. This is like distortion, right? And, but prophet said this, he knew the research has been there that this is excessive force and you're seeing widening of the L of the nose, all sorts of other issues. Um, so we have this debate. When I first say this to most of my, my ortho colleagues, they're like, wait a minute. And, and in the podcast, with Lou Chimera, he, he said that at first. And then Lou being such a smart guy, he's like, well, actually, now that you say that, like, I guess braces and wires, if it's delivering the same amount of force as like a quad helix or a W arch or a night and all expander, because we all know there are plenty of studies out there that show that that works. Bell uh, in 1982 published something in the AJO at the time. It's now the AJODO. Uh, review did a literature review to look at the quantitative and qualitative changes of sutural, skeletal, and dental tissues, right, in human and an humans and animals from maxillary expansion. The conclusion, again, this is 82, this is not new, cutting edge. He concluded that slow maxillary expansion procedures compare favorably with the qualitative orthopedic orthodontic changes reported during rapid maxillary expansion in pre-pubertal age groups. Mm. He also concluded that the uh, enhanced maintenance of the tissue integrity because it's less damaging. And there are tons of studies out there. Melson has some, I mean, tons of, of histological studies showing that the damage that's occurring on a cellular level with RPE is, is profound. And when you're 14, there's not much you can do about that. It is kind of like just going to be what's going to happen because you need that right, much force. Right. Why would we do that unnecessarily to a seven or eight-year-old? but that um, it's been associated with greater post-treatment stability and less relapse potential. So yes, I saw an article on that too, Mike, because it was talking about, if you look at the histological aspect of rapid palatal expansion, it's more of a damage reparative completely. cartilage versus a true bony, like the body likes slow and yes, steady. Slow and yep. steady wins the race, right? So um yeah, go back to what you were saying. I just it, that article popped in my head too, just about it being reparative, yeah. damaged tissue, and it's like, oh goodness, no, that that's it, and and so that's one big part of it is is understanding the difference. And again, I go into that article in the, this part two of my two part series in OrthoTown, talking about and giving a lot of the the, the background literature. So for people that want to check that out, um, we can actually based on when the release date of the podcast, maybe we can put a link to that in as well. And people can see that because it goes into the literature in much more detail. But the point is, is there is a significant amount 
of literature out there. And the data are very clear that when you use light forces on younger kids, you get orthopedic change, period, right? So people in our profession conflate it and say, you know, you know, light force is just tip teeth. Well, if you're 14, you get some dental alveolar remodeling, but you're not expanding a suture, right? The other big misconception is the mandibular arch. And, you know, as you're pointing the tongue, as we're talking, this is actually something I'm kind of thinking of as we're talking about this. Yeah. Maybe part of the magic of this was, and I know people and say magic, they're like, oh, no, no, no. When, I'm right. not saying this is literally magic. Okay. What I'm saying right. is it's, 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 it's a, it's a wonderful approach that happens in a way that actually blows your mind. Right. <laughs> so it's the, yes. the, the analogy to magic because you look at it happening in your patient, you're going, whoa, what is going on here? But maybe a big part of that, that even I've been missing is by me getting on that lower arch. What did it do? More, made more tongue space more quickly for the tongue to come forward. And when you just put an RPE in, which is blocking the tongue from even going up into the palatal vault, right? That you're not letting that tongue come forward and be, as I loved you said, nature's expander. So by expanding that mandibular arch, letting the tongue come forward more synergistically with the maxillary arch, you are actually getting that tongue into a better position because I would watch these lower arches just transform in front mm. of my eyes. And I'm like, oh my gosh. Yeah. And People say they get all very uptight, like you can't expand a mandibular arch without surgery. And I have colleagues say that to me all the time. And I say, look, I get the mandibular midline synthesis is fused around birth, right? Clear, but we don't need to debate that. You're not expanding the mandible. <laughs> You're getting dental alveolar expansion, which is completely physiologic and possible. Actually, 1962, Walter. So in 1962, Walter had a study that concluded that the mandibular arch could be expanded permanently. And then in 66, a lot of us have heard of the Schwartz appliance. Mm -hmm. Yes. And Gratzinger, they presented that in 1966. Yes. And that is something Sean Carlson, I went to see him speak one time and he was challenging some of the, you know, I get it. I We're not expanding at the symphysis. Okay. We're not uh, saying we're doing, um, you know, uh, what what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, Extraction. Yes. Extraction yes. Of well, yes. That's the exact word I was <laughs> looking for. I'm putting like some plates down there. Exactly. I'm. Mean, we're not talking no. that. But Schwartz <laughs> showed that with the short. You can do a lower Schwartz, and and they can show mm -hmm. that you do get some changes down there, significant. But like you said, you know, we're encouraging the tongue to do its job. Get out of the tongue's way. Move the white things out of the tongue's way. Let yes. it get up there and do what it needs to do. Um. And, and McNamara too. I mean, he's renowned in our literature and he's done a lot of research on phase one over the years. He's reported on, on the benefits of a Schwartz, Schwartz appliance and that doing a Schwartz with upper expansion is more beneficial. You get better increases in, in arch perimeter. I mean, so it's not like this isn't out there. It, and it, right, it's, right. Th that's the part of it that sometimes I literally, it's just so perplexing. Um, Neil Kravitz, who um, is active in the online communities as well. He had an article in uh, the journal Clinical Orthodontics, of which he's now the editor, in, in 2014, which talked about the fact that you want to try use an Arnold expander, in this case, to expand the mandibular arch and, and get increase the intercanine width. And he stated that for maximum efficacy, you need to do this before the permanent canines erupt. So, yeah, you know, so we, we, again, we've... Like, we know this works. We know if you develop that, you know, the whole theory of if you move the baby teeth, the adult teeth don't follow and they just end up crowded anyway is false. It's yeah. <laughs> it's And I never saw that either. People or even waiting for first molars to erupt, you know, you need to wait for the first molars to erupt because they may not follow. Um, most of the time they did. 
Yep. Um, but you know, there's ways that you just grab them if they didn't. So, I mean, you, you, you make room, we provide a good environment for the tongue to get up and forward, get yep. out of that airway, Correct. help develop the palate, which is the floor of the nose, Correct. help do all of these things to remove obstacles. I mean, we have so much impact on these kids, powerful impact. So here's where I'm going to say to you, mm-hmm. if we see these articles, I mean, you are throwing out literature after literature, after literature supporting uh, that this does work. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think more orthos aren't doing this? It's such a good question. Um, <clears throat> when I was just giving a lecture to uh, the residents yesterday at uh, NSU, I the ortho residents, I, I talk about that to them a lot. You know, why in this particular case, yesterday we were talking more about cone beam and, and why orthos aren't embracing it more when oral surgeons and endodontists and you know uh, many others, general practitioners have really understand the value of it. I think a lot of it just comes down to, it's hard to change. It's hard to change. Um, When I changed, you know, now looking back, you kind of gloss over it. It's like, oh, it just kind of happened, you know, and I was telling the story earlier and it's like these, these patients, I just started doing it. But implementing that in a very busy orthodontic practice that I had (laughs) is, is easier said than done. And you have to change your systems, your scheduling. No longer are you you know, placing separators and bands and impressing or, or scanning for, for an appliance and delivering the appliance, all those systems and all those corresponding appointment types go away. Now, once you get through six to 12 months of that, it's wonderful because you're not doing that stuff much anymore. Um, but when you go through that transition and then you've got some patients who are in expanders and now you're telling other patients you're going to do it a better way. Right. <laughs> and so I had many times where the one patient in expanders their sibling was the one I'm now telling. That we're gonna yeah, do like, it a wait a way. second. Like, but I thought, and then, you know, there's one cute testimony on my website where the one kid was like, I got version 2.0 because he yeah. was so, you know, he's so happy of, of what he was able to achieve for his sister. Didn't, he didn't have to go through these expanders. So it was, it's hard is what I'm saying. Like it, it's not, yeah. you got a lot of, have a lot of scripting. You've got to train your team who you that is tell huge, your team. Like, like, yes, like, the team is, is everything. Yeah. And I mean, they have to understand this. And and if you have teams that have worked elsewhere and have experience, they're going to first think like most people think when you say it, like, this is crazy. This can't work. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of team education. Uh, it's really challenging to implement a lot of this. And even the cone beam implementing that you need to maybe upgrade your server. And if you have multiple offices, do you put one in every office? So there's a lot of logistical challenges. Orthodontists by and large are very routine. We like our routine we're kind of ritualistic in that. And it's almost, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So if you're looking at your cases and you're going, I haven't done it this way and my patients aren't dying on me. Right. Or, you know, cause you don't necessarily right. see what's happening to them down the road and you don't know if they're necessarily thriving outside your office, but if the teeth look relatively straight after you do or look good, or you have a good occlusion or even wonderful after, after you've completed treatment as an adolescent, you, it's hard to tell yourself, well, I should be thinking about doing this a 180 degrees differently, right? Well, I should they're be also not asking the questions either. So they don't know that things- And that's a great like, point. Yeah. You know, yeah. they're not yeah. asking in their screening, you know, about airway questions or, you know, I shouldn't say they broad mm, stroke. A lot aren't. Yeah. A lot a lot aren't. Are. And yeah. some are, I mean, and some, you know, they will say, you know, I can see your mouth breathing, send them to the ENT, but then they minimize the impact 
that they have yes. post tonsil and adenoidectomy, right? So they are, they're doing a piece of it, which kudos to them. Okay. They're referring to that ENT. Agreed. Great. Cause not all of them are. So those of you that are, thank you. Yes. You're changing that child's life. Agreed. You're removing an obstacle, but man, you hold so much power uh, right. to change that child's life. In addition to the tonsils and adenoids coming out, like and how really, many kids really have you do. seen that had the tonsils and adenoids out and still snore or mouth breathe? Maybe not and, as bad, but they still but do. They still do, and that's I mean the ENTs will tell you that. Yes. So then you and I have gone into more orthos. Why aren't more orthos doing this? And then now you've got. So then why are so many GPs and pediatric dentists doing it? Yeah, that's and what it's, I, I, what, yeah. Why do you think why? Because that's a big thing. The orthos are kind of a lot of the orthos. And look, I, I'm agnostic on this. I I want what's best for the patient. I don't get yeah. involved in the whole. I'm an orthodontist. I went to more school. I, I am the expert in this. Like we all are looking at the same patient. We all are dentists. At the end of the day, we want what's best for our patients. It's not like we need. We should be pulling rank here that we have more training uh, or are better. If we've done something more and are more proficient in it, that's a different discussion, right? But if you're just talking about training and knowledge. I've never been one to be like, oh, you know, only the orthodontists should be the ones that are involved in, in these types of conversations and discussions. So the orthodontists get very upset when they hear, yes. oh, well, these GPs and pedos are starting to do this. And I've actually said to people very established in my profession, if the orthodontists don't wake up on this, the pedos and GPs are going to start eating our lunch and realizing that we're missing a window to care for our patients. And they're going to start doing it because they understand that we're not doing it the way we should be. So to ask you that question, why, I'd love to hear your feedback on what got you into it uh, and what you think in talking to your general practitioner and pediatric colleagues has them motivated to start to do this. Well, I, I was actually talking to an oral surgeon the other day because it, we get this even with possibly periodontists and oral surgeons when general practitioners, primary care dentists start placing implants. They have two options. They can get defensive mm -hmm. and say, hey, you're um you are doing something that, you know, I I'm typically doing and you used to refer all of it to me. Now you're doing it yourself. Mm -hmm. And the I was talking with the oral surgeon and and he knows that I place implants and and actually the periodontist in town, he goes, Look, the more implants you place, I feel the more you're gonna refer to me, actually. Yeah. Because you now have a better understanding so, yep. of what, and it is so true. And the oral surgeon said to me this week, and I just love it. And you can apply this to the ortho uh, general practitioner too. A rising tide raises all ships. Yep. So if, you know, if we can just start talking and, and maybe the orthos ask, like, why don't you ask that primary care dentist, why are you doing it? And right. we'll gladly tell you one, right. we wish you would. Um, and because- most orthos aren't, we have to do something because we do see the demographic. We do see the population. We do yep. see the changes. So we're not going to sit and basically supervise neglect and wait till they're, you know, all their baby teeth are out and someone wants to put brackets on or some kind of palatal expander later in life. Yep. Uh, after all the neurocognitive deficits have, you know, been pretty much hardwired in, we're going to act now. And so it's just, not I want to dig just one second on that. I think, I think it's such a great point, but what I'm hearing you say is 
and I want to just make sure I have it clearly. It's not that you're doing this to seek to take the work from the orthodontists. You're doing this because the orthodontists aren't doing it and you see a need which would benefit the oh. patient. So instead of at that point, willfully neglecting to help a patient that you know you could help, no different than leaving decay in their mouth or leaving periodontal disease, you see something that as a professional, your ethical and moral responsibility is to address. You try to encourage an orthodontic colleague to do it. They want none of it and probably right. tell you you're crazy for even asking. And what is you, what are you to do as a pediatric dentist and, and general dentist now? Just, just be like, well, you know, no, I'm going to throw up my hands. I mean, I can't imagine it's easy for you to integrate another type of treatment concept. I, I wouldn't want to be in the middle of my day placing an implant. I think what you as general practitioners do and having multiple family members in that field, it's hard. You have a lot to do. We have a lot like, of balls in the air, Mike. All, and, you know, yeah. <laughs> and, and you're right. And you did summarize it. So like within ASAP pathway, we do teach screening and diagnostics and collaboration and working with medical and our dental colleagues as well. Um, and we have plenty of dentists that may not necessarily want to do the interception, um, but they want to build a community and make an impact and help their own children in their house, their neighborhoods, their mm -hmm. families and their practices. Yep. Um, and they're looking for orthodontists, right? And yeah. so then we we do have orthodontists in ASAP pathway too, but we do have plenty of general practitioners that are doing the interception themselves because they're like, look, nobody's doing it. Mike, I had to fly... I was flying to Philly. I, I flew my son to see Mariana Evans mm. years ago because nobody would do what I needed done in town. And that's that's why I am where I am at. I mean, I had to do all the studying and I'll talk to orthodontists and they're like, wow, you really know a lot about growth and development. Wow, you really know a lot about... I had to learn it because nobody yeah. would do it. And I had to help the kids and I had to help my kids. Um, so where do you see... I mean, where do you see this, our profession going from here? Um, the short answer is I'm optimistic. I really am. Um, I'm really optimistic. You know, when I started this fight, I've taken, I've taken a lot of backlash and, and I don't, I mean, I, that honestly, it does not bother me. Um, I'm kind of built to be a fighter that way. I, it doesn't, it, it motivates me. Uh, I know what this does for our patients and I've seen it. And that's why I'm so passionate about getting the message out there. Um, I want to ask you just to elaborate a little more on the ASAP platform in a moment. You gave a little bit there, but just kind of how people can find you and whatnot. But with the doc platform, that's why I've built this. That's why the begin my, my content for doc won't always be about just primarily interceptive treatment and all that, that it is now I'm going to be going into a lot, you know, cleft craniofacial and herps and class two correction. And I mean, lots of other things, but the reason I'm so focused primarily on that now is that is my core passion to be able to educate my colleagues, ortho, general, pedo, to say, hey, wait a minute, something is going on in these young kids and, and there's a way we can do it. And I'm going to keep fighting for it. The good news is, and why I'm optimistic, even though I faced a lot of backlash on it, is the people who are taking my courses on my website, the people who are consuming my podcast content and listening to this and seeing this and doing coaching with me and learning it are literally, it's transforming the way they look at their patient care, their practices. They're, they're having amazing impacts on the, on the lives of their patients already just doing it. And, you know, I launched doc a few months ago. So, uh, I think it's just going to be a slow grind for a while and, 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 and yeah. transitioning to what you're doing with ASAP pathway, 
talk more a little more, more about how people could directly benefit from that because I think if all of us, which is why you and I wanted to put this collaboration together, the more those of us who see this and get this start to put it out there. And I give you tremendous courage for being willing to put your message out and go out there and speak in front of orthodontists who are automatically a lot of times very inappropriately going to look and say, oh, well, if you're not an orthodontist, I'm not going to pay attention to that. Well, no, like you said, you have given yourself and taught yourself knowledge that isn't even being taught in residencies. So most graduating orthodontists have less knowledge about what we're talking about than you do. So you become an expert in this arena and you having that conversation and having a platform like you have becomes incredibly important. So I'm optimistic. I feel it's going in the right direction. I thank you for the things you're doing and, and uh, your group is doing. And if you would talk a little bit more about how people can kind of get in touch with you on that. Well, uh, I'm optimistic too, Mike. I'm optimistic. I mean, finding you makes me more optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> so when I come across someone and, and we just happen to connect and it's it's like um i really do think that again going back to a rising tide raises all ships your community our community the asap pathway community it's an online platform we have a community of mentorship uh, we have live courses things like that we teach uh, pediatric dental sleep medicine as well oh, so understanding that aspect but it comes down to I think people need a safe place right now, Mike. Mm. I think people need a place where um, we're all working together. We're collaborating. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Versus just like throwing something on social media and getting yeah. a barrage of negativity. And yeah, that's a good point. So I think, you know, having a, a group where people feel safe they, mm -hmm. to ask the questions mm -hmm. where an ortho, a GP, um, you know, a pediatric dentist can go and they know, look, I can ask really vulnerable questions in here. I can challenge thought processes that are currently existing and mindsets that exist. Um, and we all learn together and we raise each other up. And at the end of the day, we are sharing stories of how we're helping kids. And man, we just all encourage each other. And like you said, you know, when you're coaching one of your clients and you're like, you get that success and you see the aha yeah. moment for them, there's nothing like it because awesome. the future of our world are these kids. Yeah, it, it is. It's, I mean, we could all just close our eyes and, you know, we're all just still little seven-year-olds in big people's bodies, really. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's so, it goes so fast and our job is to provide um, a clear path for these kids, walk mm -hmm. alongside them, help mm -hmm. them get as many obstacles in, you know, in interfering with their growth and development out of the way for them. Mm -hmm. Nothing's perfect, right? We're still learning. Gosh, Mike, we'll probably do another podcast and talk about some new literature that came out. We're all learning together. Completely. We're Including in the, the trenches together. And ENTs and their yes. On my cleft craniofacial team, we they they're picking my brain. I'm picking their brain. This is yes. that's a great point. This is in its genesis, and all the literature and data. There's tons of evidence base for this going back a hundred years, literally, as we talked a little bit about in part one. But we haven't really coalesced it and put it together. And it's been these little pockets of people or, or areas that may be doing it and understanding it. And now it's time to say, no, 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 no. We're going to create one big unified front to say this works and we're not going away and we're going to show yeah. you this works because we're fighting for these kids to yes. do what's right for them. 
Yes. Amen to that, friend. I'm yeah. I'm excited about more conversations together. But before we go, I have um just a walk down memory lane for you since okay. you know Uh-oh. kids are important and um you know childhood is precious. <clears throat> and I just have three questions for you. So first, what was your favorite after school show to watch uh, when you were a kid? Who's the boss? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Who's the boss? Yeah. I love that the best. show. Yeah, I was always on earlier. Yeah. That's such a great show. <laughs> that's a good one. Yeah. yeah. What was your favorite cereal when you were little? Grape nuts. So bland. So boring. What? But yeah. So grape boring. nuts. Why? Why did you like grape nuts? I was like always into eating healthy. I didn't like sugary cereals and I was particular about what I would eat. And for some reason they were one of the healthier cereals back then. So I would that. I, You've I, always I, like, been a health I've nut. Got, I've got my, th- this, this man of these masseters. I needed to mass. Maybe that's why. <laughs> Chewing grape Thanks nuts. Thanks to grape was, nuts for your, was, those yeah, masseters. I was uh, eight to 10, eight to 12 years old. That's, that's why I've got these masseters. Yeah. <laughs> Oh, good for you. That's the healthiest cereal I've heard so far. So congrats on that. Okay. And who was your favorite superhero when you were a kid? Uh, when I was a kid, Superman. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yep. That was mine too. Good. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I, I loved Superman, Superman. For, for Halloween one year. And yeah, Superman, uh, w- without a doubt. Um, Superman and, and a close second would be the Hulk. So that was, oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> I guess we're trying to live vicariously <laughs> through that. But uh, yeah, the Hulk, I, oh, that was another another big one. But those are my two favorites. I, I love was, it. I, well, I thought of it because I was also I literally green. I painted myself green one Halloween <laughs> for kids. So yeah. I love it. And Mike, you're a lot of kids superheroes. You're a lot of kids supermans. Oh, and I appreciate you. um Superman and I appreciate what you're doing in the community. And let's keep working together to raise that tide so yeah. all of us uh do better for these kids. Yeah, thank you so much. I can't thank you enough for this. And and let's entertain doing more. And just as yeah. time goes on, we're gonna be in touch. And um, I think the more we can just get this content out there. And I, I just give you so much credit for what you're doing and putting all this together. And and it's been fun for me to collaborate with you. And that's how the message gets out there. So Wonderful. I love it. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for um, thanks for having these conversations and being so brave. And uh, I look forward to more conversations. Same here. Thanks. So thanks, much, Mike. All right. Bye. Take care. Bye. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to CE courses or schedule a private one-on-one coaching session with me. And remember to join the doc community on Locals for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Locals and search for the doc community. You can also find doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And remember, you have the power to do amazing things.